This is an audio presentation in the series War Crimes Trials of the Second World War. Oscar Schmitz was prosecuted by the British during the Belsen trial for conspiracy to commit war crimes. His story is worth telling because it reveals the attitude of the prosecution to obtaining convictions and shows the state of chaos which enveloped the British attempt to punish war criminals. Belsen concentration camp was liberated on the 15th of April 1945 and was immediately a scene of enormous confusion. 40,000 inmates who were racked by disease and malnutrition were now the responsibility of the British Army and their primary concern was to put in hand a massive operation to feed, treat, clothe and house these people. But punishment of those who had brought about this tragedy was also important, and a war crimes investigation team was put to work to identify those responsible and to bring them to justice. The team worked hard, but it was gravely under-resourced and lacked everything from typewriters to translators. Nevertheless, London expected results, and there was heavy pressure for prosecutions to be brought and convictions registered. Some good work was done, but then one Oscar Schmitz came to the attention of the team. He was with a group of SS men who had been arrested, and prosecutors set out to find the evidence which they could use against him and secure another conviction. The maximum penalty was hanging. To find this evidence, they went round the camp with photographs of their prisoners and asked inmates if they knew the men and, if they did, whether they could make statements of any wrongdoing by them. These inquiries produced two witnesses. On the 13th of June, 1945, one Vaclav Jesny told a sergeant of the Corps of Military Police that Schmitz was an SS man and that he had seen Schmitz shoot and kill three prisoners. The statement was taken down and then put into the form of an affidavit, that is, a document which would be formally sworn and signed by the witness. However, the recently freed inmates were keen to leave Belsen and go to their homes as soon as they were well enough, and by the time the affidavit was ready for Jesny to sign, three days later, he had left Belsen, probably for Prague, and all contact with him was lost. The prosecution now found itself in a difficult position. With respect to the alleged three shootings, it had only an unsigned piece of paper to support its case. But the fact that it was unsigned, which almost certainly would have proved a fatal omission in any court in America or Britain, did not stand in the way of it being submitted to this court, which had very relaxed rules of evidence. In fairness to the prosecution, it should be said that they realised the weakness of their position. They needed to give the court weightier evidence, and they thought that a properly signed affidavit would provide this. Accordingly, they asked the sergeant who had initially interviewed Jesney to himself swear an affidavit. In that affidavit, the sergeant swears that Jesney's draft and unsigned affidavit, and here I quote, 
truly and accurately sets forth the evidence that the said Vaclav Jesny intended to give. Unquote. I leave you to gauge how much weight a jury should put on such a document. In summary, before the court there was an affidavit from a sergeant saying that Jesny, if he had completed his affidavit, would have sworn that Schmitz, an SS man, had shot three prisoners. There was no evidence brought forward by the prosecution to prove that Schmitz was an SS man, and there was no evidence to corroborate Jesny's accusation that Schmitz had shot three prisoners. And Schmitz said he did not do it. It was one man's word against another's. The war crimes investigation team had uncovered one other witness, a Frenchman by the name of Raymond Dujeu. Dujeu swore an affidavit which stated, and here I quote, Although I never myself saw him beat anyone, my friends have told me that he often beat them. Unquote. This is a perfect example of hearsay evidence. Dujeu has no direct knowledge of any beating delivered to his friends by Schmitz. All that he is doing is repeating a claim made by his friends. Now here there is an important legal point which strikes at the fundamental fairness of the trial. Hearsay evidence is not acceptable in any criminal court in the United States or Britain for the simple reason that it is considered not to be reliable. If evidence of the beatings were to be put before a court in the United States or Britain, then the friends of Dujeu would have had to come to the court and give their evidence in person. However, this was a British war crimes tribunal, and, as with all the other war crimes trials dealt with in these podcasts, hearsay evidence was accepted. You must form your own view on the fairness of this procedure. Schmitzer's defence revealed a tale of misunderstandings and incompetence. He recounted a story as hilarious, but only in retrospect, as it was farcical. Schmitz said that he was a German prisoner at the camp. Very understandably, Germans, all Germans, were highly unpopular amongst the prisoners, and on the night after the British had arrived at Belsen, he was set upon by other prisoners. They forced him to strip to his socks and underpants, and looked as though they were about to attack him with a bayonet. To save his skin, he jumped out through a window and sought sanctuary with the British guards. They were surprised. They had an excited and presumably terrified German shouting and gesticulating at them. But they did not speak German, and he did not speak English. They decided to take him in, probably saving his life in doing so, and put him in a cell with four SS men, which might easily have cost him his life. Schmitz then needed clothes, but it was his misfortune that the clothes handed to him were those of an SS soldier and in the minds of the guards this confirmed his status. Scandalously, and probably because there was a dearth of interpreters, no one interviewed him until after he had been charged with war crimes. And it was only then that his story came out. He told his defending counsel that he was a German, and that he was also a minor criminal, a deserter from the army, a communist, and had been a prisoner in various camps continuously since 1938. With a record like that, no army, and certainly not the SS, would have accepted him as a recruit. 
He said that while he was at Belsen he had been made a Lager Elterster, that is, a Block Senior, and he most certainly was not a guard. You might think that this would have sunk the prosecution's case, but you would be wrong. They had nothing resembling reliable evidence, and so chose to fall back on circumstantial evidence. Colonel Backhouse, the prosecutor, submitted, and here I quote, Could the court believe, if the accused were really a prisoner, a camp senior, over 28 prisoners, that he should suddenly be put in charge of 15,000 people, and tell Hursler how to run the camp? What was much more likely was that he came as an SS man and helped to guard and to supervise the clearing up of the concentration camp during the last few days. Unquote. Note the words, much more likely was that he came as an SS man. People should not be hanged because one possibility is much more likely than another. The test is whether their guilt has been proved beyond all reasonable doubt. Backhouse made that submission either because he believed it was reasonable and proper, or because he thought the court would consider it reasonable and proper. This is a sad indictment, either of Backhouse or of the court. The simple truth is that none of the so-called evidence against Schmitz was of any value whatsoever and the matter should never have been allowed to waste the time of the court. The actions of the prosecution in pressing the matter were no less than shameful. Schmitz was, thankfully, acquitted.